Amen. Thank you, Adam, for leading us in our pastoral prayer. Uh, Jeff, for leading us as liturgists and to all of our musicians, uh, we're grateful for the way that you have led us to the throne of grace this morning. The scripture reading this morning comes from two particular passages, one we've been reading each week over the last couple of months, Galatians 5, 22 and 23, and then we're going to turn back to the second chapter of Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia, chapter 2, verses 15 through 21. I invite you now to listen attentively, and if you're able, to stand for the reading from God's holy word. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against such things. And then this word from Galatians 2. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is justified not by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And we have come to believe in Christ Jesus so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by doing the works of the law because no one will be justified by the works of the law. But if in our effort to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have been found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. But if I build up again the very things that I once tore down, then I demonstrate that I am a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, we're, we're continuing what we began the Sunday after Easter back in April, late April, this series on the fruit of the Spirit, specifically around these verses in Galatians chapter 5. Over the last couple of months, if you've been with us, you know that we have covered a lot of ground in regard to these specific attributes, these characteristics of a Christ follower. And to date, we have looked at love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and goodness. But today I want to spend a few minutes with you talking about the fruit of faithfulness, faithfulness. That word in the Greek language in which the New Testament was first written is pistas. It means to be trustworthy. It means to be truthful. It means to be reliable, to be confident, to be loyal. Of course, faithfulness, like all the other fruits, is not self-generated. It is the gift of God. Our faithfulness is not the result of our own striving, of our own struggle. It is indeed the outgrowth of the work of grace which God is doing within us. And having said that, of course, there, there's really no basis for boasting about our faith. Those who are faithful have no need to call attention to our own faithfulness. It's interesting that when you do that, when I do that, I can get myself into some real trouble. 
I think about Jesus' story in Luke 18 of the Pharisee and the tax collector. You remember that story. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, a separate one, a very devout man of faith, and the other, a hated tax collector. The Scripture, the way Jesus tells it, these two men, one a Pharisee, listen to the language, posed and prayed thus with himself. It's almost as though he's not really communicating with God. He's communicating about himself to God. God, he says, you certainly are lucky to have me. I wish everybody in the world could be like me. We wouldn't have the problems. I'm not like others, he prayed, like robbers, thugs, thieves, and especially like this tax collector. For I fast twice a week. I give a tithe of all of my income And what you see in this prayer is that the Pharisee is actually a poster child of pistos, faithfulness. Meanwhile, the fellow next to him, the tax man, won't even lift up his head. Slumping down in the shadows, face down, he cries out what we call the sinner's prayer, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus then says in the story, guess which one went home justified that day, right with God. You would expect it would be the Pharisee, but Jesus says, no, it's the tax man. And then Jesus adds this little P.S. at the end of the story. If you walk around the church with your nose up in the air, you're going to wind up flat on your face. But if you're content to simply be yourself, you will, by God's grace, become more than yourself. The name Philip Yancey may ring a bell to many of you. He wrote a book a few years ago called What's So Amazing About Grace. It's a wonderful read. In the book, he says, and I quote, grace does not depend on what we have done for God, but on what God has done for us. He goes on to say, if you ask people what they have to do to go to heaven, most of them will reply, be good. But Jesus contradicts this answer. Jesus says all we have to do is to cry, help. And so it was in the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. This morning, I want to take a little different approach to the text. Instead of doing what we've been doing in this series on the fruit, instead of, instead of treating this as a topical message on faithfulness, what I'd like to do for a few minutes is I'd like to give you the backstory of the letter to the Galatians, particularly as it pertains to the fruit of faithfulness. Paul wrote this little note in five chapters as a prescription for a pickle that was threatening the heart of the Christian faith in the churches of Galatia, which he knew that if these issues were unaddressed, it could abort the gospel movement in its infancy. If you know the history of the early church, you will know that Paul planted these churches in Asia Minor in a region called Galatia which included Lystra and Derbe, Antioch of Pisidia, and others. 
Paul went to Asia Minor sometime in or around the time of the Jerusalem conference, according to Acts 15, which he also notes and cites in Galatians 2. If you remember the history of the church, that particular conference, that that Jerusalem conference, which by the way is the way we knew that they were Methodists, they had an annual conference, that conference was the time and place where the elders of the church affirmed Paul's ministry to the Gentiles. Now, we all remember that the gospel movement began as a Jewish renewal movement, but at this point in the second generation of the church, it was spreading like gangbusters among the Gentiles. Paul's trip to Galatia was one of those trips that was unexpected and unplanned, likely due to a health concern that he had around 48 CE. And so he goes to Galatia looking for medical help, and while he's convalescing, he preached. He proclaimed the grace of God in Christ Jesus, crucified and risen. And the response was terrific. Paul never stayed in one place too long, and so after a time, he moved on to the next mission post, but it wasn't long before it came to Paul's attention that his work in Galatia was being undermined by a group, a missionary group, Jewish Christians who came after Paul's ministry, and says Paul, they began preaching a different gospel. What does that mean? How was it different? Well, thanks for asking. It was different in this regard. This missionary group that followed the Apostle Paul affirmed, as did Paul, that Jesus was the Messiah, the long-awaited one, and that Jesus' grace was important for salvation. But this group taught that in order to take the next step in covenant faithfulness, circumcision was mandatory absolutely necessary. They implied that Paul in his ministry had failed to instruct the people properly in regard to the Torah. And so they were telling the people, they were teaching the Galatians that in addition to grace, you must adopt the Jewish law, which includes circumcision, dietary regulations, and Sabbath rules. Now, when you hear that at first, you say, well, that sounds reasonable to me. What's the big deal? Well, for Paul, it was a big deal. And for us, it's a big deal. Because in essence, what these missionaries were teaching post-Paul, they were saying, God's grace is not enough for your salvation. It's not enough. You have to add something to it, and that's where the trouble begins. The truth of the matter is, if Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, and He is, then salvation is not a matter of Jesus plus anything. It's not Jesus plus certain cultural practices. It's not grace plus my theological perspective. It's not Jesus plus my ethnic heritage. It's not even Jesus plus my denominational lineage or my political party. It's interesting, isn't it, that so often we all have our plus ones, don't we? We all have a tendency to need to add a little something to the grace of God in order to bolster our own confidence or our own faithfulness. But Jesus plus 
anything ruins everything. And Paul couldn't be silent. When you think about it, it's the same heresy that happens historically. It happened in the Protestant Reformation. It was a similar battle that Martin Luther faced, the 16th century German priest, who stood up against the political and religious institution, the Holy Roman Empire, because the empire said it's Jesus plus indulgences. It's Jesus plus confession. It's Jesus plus offering. And Luther advocated solus Christus, which means Christ alone. In fact, Mr. Luther went so far to say to mix law and gospel not only clouds the knowledge of grace, it cuts out Christ altogether. Heidi Armstrong, Presbyterian pastor in the West, said it like this, if anybody or anything else can be said to justify the sinner, then the gospel has been derailed, and in the words of Paul, Christ died for nothing. It's pretty important theologically to our salvation. In fact, you see this echoed in Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, where he says, for it is by grace that you have been saved, and this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no person can boast. He echoed this same theology to the Romans in chapter 3, verses 23 and following, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and all are justified, that word means made right with God by God's grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. It's a pretty serious matter, grace. In fact, it was so serious in Galatia that Paul wrote to his friends there in chapter 5, verse 4, these words. Listen to this. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. I was reading Eugene Peterson's intro to Galatians the other day. Many of you know this wonderful paraphrase that Eugene Peterson who died a couple of years ago, wrote called The Message. In the intro section of his Galatians paraphrase, he writes interesting words that are apropos to the problem in Galatia. Listen to what he says. When men and women get their hands on religion, one of the first things they often do is to turn it into an instrument for controlling others either putting them in their place or keeping them in their place. Says Peterson, the history of such religious manipulation and coercion is long and tedious. It is little wonder then, he says, that people who have only known religion on those terms experience release or escape from it as freedom. But the problem is, says Peterson, that freedom turns out to be short-lived. The truth of the matter is libertinism is no better than legalism. They're both the same in their result. The result is slavery to the flesh. It was Plato who said, 
Good people don't need laws to tell them how to act responsibly, and bad people will find a way around the laws. What's the point? The truth of the matter is we need law. We need civil law. Law is a gift of God. The commandments are a gift of God, and Paul is clear about that. In fact, he refers to the law metaphorically in Galatians as a disciplinarian. One translator says as a principal in a high school or as a babysitter. The principal's job in the school is to keep the students from doing harm, and you need that. But the law cannot compel us to do right. It may keep us from doing wrong, but it cannot compel us to do right. The law is limited. It is temporary, says Paul. It cannot save us. Only grace can do that. Now, I don't know about you, but let me confess to you for a moment. Sometimes I have a hard time trusting grace. Maybe you do too. I I sometimes will overhear people say something like this, you know, it's really important to err on the side of grace, but I sometimes wonder why don't we live on the side of grace? Why does grace have to be an error? Why can't it be a lifestyle? I'm sometimes afraid of grace because I was raised like most of you, in a culture where when someone gives you something, there's something expected in return. I grew up the old-fashioned way, you have to earn it. And so sometimes the idea of grace makes me afraid because I fear that someone will take advantage of my grace, your grace. And the same was true in Galatia. These missionaries who followed Paul liked his message, but they were so concerned that if you emphasize the grace of God, people are going to take advantage of it. They're going to cheapen it. They're going to dilute it. They're going to water it down. And I do. And so do you. God forgive us. The trouble with grace is it's just so unfair. I mean, it's so unfair, especially when it's shown to anyone other than me who doesn't deserve it. It seems so unfair. When I think of grace and unfairness, I think of Jonah. (laughs) You remember Jonah in the Old Testament? I, I like to think of him as the prodigal prophet. That's what he was. Jonah had a hard time with grace. In fact, the Scripture implies that Jonah actually loathed God because God loved his enemies, and it was too much for Jonah. You remember the story. God called Jonah to preach repentance and forgiveness, grace, to people he didn't care for, the Ninevites. And the truth of the matter is, you wouldn't have cared for the Ninevites any more than Jonah. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. And you remember what happened in 721 BCE to the Israelites. The Assyrian armies came through and razed the nation, tore it apart, disassembled the infrastructure, 
and deported the people. You wouldn't have liked Ninevites any more than Jonah, and I wouldn't have. And here is God calling Jonah to go to preach to the enemy. And what did Jonah do? (laughs) He said, "Uh uh-uh. He didn't want to go. And so rather than going in the direction that God called him, he went the exact opposite direction. He hopped a boat to Tarshish, And he went as far as you can go from Nineveh to Tarshish and still be on the map. And you remember while he was sailing to Tarshish, something happened. A storm occurred and Jonah became fish bait, swallowed by an orca. (laughs) And in the belly of that whale, Jonah changed his mind. Well, that would have done it for me too. He decided, reluctantly speaking, to be faithful to God's call, and he did what God commanded. He went to Nineveh, and he preached. The sermon wasn't very good. It was only just a few words. In 40 days, God will overturn Nineveh. He didn't expect the response that he got But people accepted his message. They repented of their sin. And you would think that this response for a preacher would have delighted his soul, but not Jonah. He said, Lord, I knew this was what you would do. This is why I didn't want to respond to your call, because I know you to be a God of compassion and mercy. And now, Lord, how are we ever going to get even? It's such a shame when folk who have received grace upon grace withhold grace from others. It is such a shame when I stop trusting grace. In fact, I've come to the conclusion that if I'm not showing grace, I may have forgotten the grace that I've been shown by others. This is the backdrop of Paul's letter. It happened in Galatia, and Paul refused to be silent. You who are trying to be justified by the law, said Paul, you have fallen from grace. You've got to come back to grace. Grace plus anything equals nothing. Now, it's interesting to me that in Galatians 2, Paul also cites the same struggle that the church in Antioch was having. Antioch had become the new headquarters for the gospel movement. It was largely Gentile in its membership. Peter and Paul had gone there to serve the people there, to preach the gospel, and the response was off the charts. People were coming to Christ. The church was flourishing. One night, says Paul in Galatians 2, at a church supper, if you can imagine, the circumcision faction, the Judaizers, as Paul called them from Jerusalem, came into the church supper. Peter had been eating at the Gentile table until this group came in. And when Peter saw them, he distanced himself from the Gentiles. Why? Because he was afraid. Peter, afraid? What was he afraid of? He was afraid of their criticism. 
He was afraid of their judgment. You know, Peter, like many of us, was kind of a people pleaser. But when Paul saw Peter distancing himself from those he had been in fellowship with, he called him out. Look at this picture on the screen. He got in his face. And he said to him, Peter, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, why are you forcing the Gentiles to live like Jews? He called him out. Because Paul knew if he let this go, it won't be long before in Galatia on one side of the street, there's going to be a Gentile church where they're eating barbecue And on the other side of the street, there's going to be a Jewish Christian church where the menu is kosher and their witness is going to be muted by an ethnic division over food. And so Paul gets in Peter's face and in essence says, hey, buddy, there's no need to Judaize the Gentiles or to Gentilize the Jews. You can eat whatever you want, but don't impose that on others. The kingdom isn't about food. It's about grace. In Christ, there is no east or west. In him, no south or north, but one great fellowship of grace throughout the whole wide earth. There isn't any Greek or Jew at this table. There isn't any slave or free, not at this table. There isn't even any status, no slave nor free. We are all enslaved and indebted to the God of grace who gave everything for us. You remember Paul in his life B.C., before Christ? You remember how faithful he had been to the law. He was so zealous for the law. But the more zealous he was about the law, when you look at him, the meaner he got. My Lord, he even held the coats of those who stoned Stephen in the name of God. Paul was an accomplice to murder in the name of God. And then Jesus got a hold of him. On a Damascus road, on his way to chain, to enslave this cultic group of the way, these Christ followers, Jesus met him and knocked him off his horse, blinded him in his own agenda and gave him a new vision. And after the Damascus road, Paul, who had been so zealous for the law, no longer would kill for his faith, he would die for his faith. What happened to Paul? It's simple. Grace, undeserved, unwarranted, unrestricted, unconditional love. It turns out that grace is enough. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Grace 
justifies. Grace sanctifies. Grace unifies. It is absolutely amazing what grace can do. One word and I'm finished. I've been thinking about Ravi Zacharias these last few days. He was a hero in the faith to me, to many of you. His home was in Gwinnett County, not far from Lawrenceville, where we were before we came to Brentwood. In fact, it wasn't unusual every now and then on a Sunday morning to look out, and here would come Ravi. He and his wife would come in and worship. Many of their staff were a part of our church, joined our church in Lawrenceville. Ravi Zacharias was a great evangelist. He was a philosopher. Uh, He was a Christian apologist who helped us to think through our faith. He was also one of the most gracious Christ-like men I've ever been privileged to know. He was converted at the age of 17. He was on the verge of contemplating suicide when someone gave him a Bible and he decided to give it a read and his life was changed by grace. He has spent the last 50 years of his life sharing that gospel message. And then in March of this year, about the time that the pandemic began, he learned of his cancer. He lasted for two months. He died on May the 20th. In his last days, in one of his last blogs before his death, he recited a poem. I've heard this poem before. I think it was written by Annie Johnson Flint just a couple of days before his death. He recited these words. He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. To added affliction, he addeth his mercy. To multiplied trials, he multiplies peace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed ere the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving is only begun. His love has no limit. His grace has no measure. His power no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. And that was his mantra. And it's ours. The backstory of the gospel is Jesus plus nothing is everything. And it is by his grace that we are empowered and enabled to be faithful. May it be so. In Jesus' name.